This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and digital journalist Hamish Penman. And we've got uh, a lot for, for you this week. We've got IPOs, we've got our very own uh, El Dorado in the North Sea, but there's uh, there's only one place to start this week. That's the, the COP27 Climate Summit, which has got underway in Egypt. And that, that followed hot on the heels of the, the ADAPEC conference in Abu Dhabi last week, where our own Ed Reed was in attendance. So uh, yeah, Ed, how was the UAE? And was there much talk in the room about the the impending climate summit? I guess the the crossover links there. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, Abu Dhabi was great. Uh, had a lovely time. Incredibly busy. I think there was something like one hundred and sixty thousand people at the at the show. That's insane. Which I mean, it was yeah, it was it was sort of mind boggling. And, and obviously, it was that kind of classic mistake of you know sort of agreeing to meet someone and sort of like hey, yeah, sure, of course, and then realizing you've got to work your way through a, a, just a, an incredibly packed you know, sort of hall, uh, village, town, essentially. Um, and, it, and it all just going to hell. I mean, I got lost. I got, you know, every, yeah, it was, it was, it was logistically challenging. Um, but yeah, I mean, so there was, there was, there was a lot of talk about, about sort of, uh, about, about carbon emissions and about, about ways to sort of track, tackle the energy transition. I mean, the, uh, so the, the, the CEO of, of Adnoc um, kind of opened proceedings as, as he does every year by, you know, with a sort of a speech. And, and he, he talked about his goal of sort of uh, how, how the world should, uh, I think it was something like the, the, the phrase was something like maximize energy, minimize emissions. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of obviously very much the, the, the Adnoc, the UAE approach to how to kind of find a way for the oil and gas industry in a, in a in a world where where obviously that kind of future of, around you know around carbon around around the environmental impact is obviously still you know a hotly contested issue, so Adnoc of course is, is is one of those companies that is working to increase its own production. I mean it's it's trying to reach uh, I think five million barrels per day by twenty thirty, an increase of about a million barrels per day. That's capacity. Obviously the how that works out with OPEC is another kind of a question. But obviously a, a company that, that that is really kind of focused on on growing its production. And the way that it tries to sort of justify this, to sort of square that circle, is to say that it aims to produce the lowest carbon barrels in the world. Uh, so it, it announced a number of, 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 of plans to do this. It's got a blockchain uh, tracking, kind of a carbon tracking initiative that it's launching with Siemens Energy to, to, so it can quantify where, where all the emissions come from along the chain, which obviously will help it you know, look at its future exports into places like Europe, where we might end up with somewhere, something like a carbon border adjustment. Uh, and, and and other things like um, like like discussions around uh, tackling uh, fugitive methane emissions. So there was yeah there was there was clearly a lot of discussion around around that sort of environmental side and around that energy transition. And obviously a lot of people were very interested in you know the next step where you know COP twenty seven happening now in Sharm El Sheikh, UAE and, and and Egypt obviously sort of really sort of strong historic links. And and obviously next year COP. 28 will be happening in Dubai so you know just down the road from uh, from Abu Dhabi so I think it's it's, it's clearly a, a sort of a, a really 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 key issue for, for that part of the world and I, and, I, and I think you can sort of see that in some of the ways in which uh, this cop is different from the last cop I mean I think obviously you know you know Glasgow uh, last year oil and gas was famously uh, out of favor you know the oil companies were kind of essentially told not to turn up weren't they and in, in quite a sort of an interesting and controversial way this time around 
it's not quite the same. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think you know, I, mm-hmm. I got a I got a release you know this morning saying you know from uh, Global Witness and among other companies saying there was a twenty five percent increase in sort of fossil fuel interest in a uh, COP. And I, and, I, and I think you can sort of see that in the way that's working out. But I, I suppose that it's that sort of interesting way is that uh, in that sort of ad hoc UAE perspective, it's a sort of a holistic energy world, right? So uh, as I mentioned, Sultan Al-Jabbar, the CEO of ad hoc, is uh, obviously a sort of a, a leading hydrocarbon proponent, but he's also the chairman of Mazda, which is uh, which is a leading kind of a clean energy champion. And Mazda announced plans for a new 10 gigawatt uh, plan in, in in Egypt just this week. So I mean, I think that's, a, that's obviously like a really sort of a significant increase. And but I think that this this this, this tension that we're seeing, and, and I suppose that reflects you know problems that we're seeing you know everywhere, isn't it? I mean, even here in the UK, where we're sort of looking at this sort of transition, but at the same mm. time, obviously we're looking at you know the alternatives. We are being more permissive in terms of licensing the North Sea in in ways that we wouldn't have seen, may, wouldn't have expected to see last year. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting seeing some of the headlines and the the, the, the media coverage of. Of COP27, um, particularly, is is not ambiguous um, about who is uh, who's to blame here. Um, well, in fairness, it's not just necessarily the fossil fuel industry, but I guess developed nations that have exploited those fossil fuels. Um, yeah, I saw an interesting report this morning uh, suggesting if, if all of the gas projects announced to you know replace r- Russian supply are followed through on, then we'll have a a major kind of oversupply, if you like, uh, according to this, uh, and send temperatures uh, well above the the 1.5 degree Paris target. I mean, we've had the we had the UN report a couple of weeks ago as well, not even talking about 1.5 anymore, 2.8 degrees, which is actually, you know, quite scary stuff when you think about the implications for for the planet there, which uh, which I suppose is, is, is part and parcel of why there's so much talk about things like loss and damage uh, in, in in Egypt this week um, for for developing nations, the island nations have been really uh, quite uh, strong on that. I thought, but uh, it, I guess it's it's heartening to see that there has been a focus on it. Um, you know, hopefully everyone is being is being genuine and and is keen to to get on with it. I, I think they are. Um, the the only other point maybe I'd I'd ask I maybe ask ask you about the parallels with the UAE as well there Ed I mean not particularly welcoming countries to protesters uh, I think it's fair to to point out as well yeah indeed a very very interesting point I thought I mean it was it was one of those things that sort of struck me at Adapec was I can't remember the last conference that I've been at an oil and gas conference that I've been at where there have been no protests. Uh, and at Adapec, there were no protests, um, at least that I, as far as I saw. And I think, you know, much, much the same has, has been said about Egypt. And I think obviously there are, it's, uh, the, you know, visas have been not particularly forthcoming, prices are high, and obviously it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a much more... Uh, or authoritarian regime, isn't it? So I think I think that is much more unwelcoming to uh, to 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 protesters, uh, which is I think is a, is a is a real difference to Glasgow. And I think I mean, I, I think you know that that is uh, one of those areas where it's 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 quite tricky, isn't it? I mean, I think obviously there is a there is a need and a desire to to see uh, these kind of events take place in you know places that aren't just the UK, right? I mean, I think obviously we can all see the the necessity for that to to, to kind of you know give you know the the African COP, as as, as kind of COP twenty seven is is kind of becoming known, but at the same time, I think there is a challenge around 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 how you let civil society have a voice, right? And I think 
trying to find some sort of a balance between that um, and, 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 and you know, quite, you know, how the, it's working out in Egypt. And as you say, I think, you know, next year in, uh, in, in, in Dubai and in, in the UAE, it's, it's going to be another, another, another challenge. So, um, yeah, I, I think um, it is a difficulty, um, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't see next year being that much different to this year in terms of how it how it looks. Just just to pick up on that reparations point, I think that was quite an interesting one about sort of loss and damage, um, which has obviously been a really kind of a contested political point. And obviously, the these sort of developing nations who who are at the you know the the, the forefront of um, you know the sort of climate change impact have asked for you know cold hard cash right to say look you know this is the problem that you guys have historically made um and 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 how about you know kind of paying us to uh you know to kind of uh, provide some sort of way in which we can sort of weather the coming storm and i think uh you know Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, you know, both talking at, uh, to, at COP this week, have both, you know, said that essentially, at least from the UK, it's 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 a no deal. I think that essentially they said that, that financially that they were unable to do that, which is understandable. But obviously, it makes it ha- that much harder to say, um, you know, that they these 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 countries can't uh, develop their own natural resources. And I think again, comes back to that kind of question around gas, right? Which would be transformative in terms of providing electrification for a lot of these, uh, all of these countries that are, uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. Something like six hundred million people lack access to electricity is the oft-touted statistic. And and so that point where you're saying, you know, we are struggling to give you the money to pay for, you know, the the to weatherize to whatever, and to say to these countries, you know, essentially that 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 cash won't be forthcoming, and then to say also that you can't earn this own cash from your own use from your own natural resources. It's um, it's it's a tricky one, and that's why you were seeing a lot of these accusations around hypocrisy. And um, I don't think there's an easy way out of it. And I think probably that is just going to be the face of of, of COP twenty seven. It's just this really uneasy tension between these uh, these these visions of the future. Mm, yeah, indeed. Yeah, there seems to be a, a trust issue there. We'll we'll see how that plays out. Okay, thank you, Ed. Uh, next up, we'll talk Ithaca Energy and, uh, well, a major public listing for, for North Sea Oil and Gas Company. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. So um, I started this week promising myself I wasn't going to talk about the windfall tax, not only because I'm so sick of talking about the windfall tax, but because we're going to have the autumn budget next week and uh, you could be pretty damn sure we'll be discussing uh, the windfall tax, among other things. So... I've already broken that promise to myself, um, but we'll try to keep it uh, secondary-ish. Um, so yeah, Ithaca Energy has made its debut on the London Stock Exchange after 
a long journey, a lot of rumors, trading publicly with, uh, I think it's 10% of uh, shares of the overall company, uh, sold to the market, raising over $250 million to pay down debt. Uh, it's a valuation in the end of about £2.45 billion for Ithaca, which was, I think, just below the lower range of their guidance. It's the first IPO for a UK exploration and production company for five years. It's the largest IPO in the UK this year. Um, uh, we had Harbour Energy uh, recently making a debut in London, but that was via a reverse takeover mechanism, if you want to get technical. Um, and we spoke to the chairman of Ithaca, uh, Gilad Meyerson, uh, this week, who said, you know, they're relieved, they're excited to get to this point. And as you might expect, he's playing this up uh, as a show of confidence in the investability of Ithaca and indeed the wider uh, North Sea oil and gas market, um, playing up their, their EBITDA earnings guidance. I think that's something like $2 billion this year. Uh, and Ithaca's made some big promises too to uh, shareholders over the next couple of years on dividends. Um, they've also got substantial upside in their West of Shetland portfolio, which we'll get into in a minute. But there has been some uh, analysis, maybe questioning the the two point four five billion uh, market value, suggesting perhaps it's a little bit too high, and uh, the market might look to uh, correct that. So uh, maybe before we get into that, maybe a little bit on on Ithaca itself. Um, for those that don't know, controlled by Israel's Delic Group, been in the North Sea for some time now. Not a new player, but certainly in the last couple of years, they've managed to you know massively grow their portfolio through a series of deals. 2019, I think it was, $2 billion for Chevron's North Sea assets. They've done deals with Mitsui, Marabeni, Summit, all these Japanese players exiting. And most uh, high profile of recent times, of course, was a $1.5 billion deal for Sicker Point Energy, which uh, of course handed them operatorship of the controversial Cambo oil field in the west of Shetland. It also gave them a a 20% stake in the nearby uh, Rosebank oil field operated by Equinor, both of which, uh, as uh, regular listeners will know, are uh, kind of these battlegrounds for climate campaigners as far as UK oil and gas goes. Ithaca said they're committed to progressing uh, both of those fields to uh, uh, an investment decision next year. Um, and you know, together, these are some of the largest untapped resources in UK waters. Uh, you'll have to go to Google for the specific estimates. I think Rosebank has been said 300 million barrels, Campbell phase one, 170 million, I think. Um, but clearly, big upside there. The share price uh, has dropped since Ithaca launched on Wednesday. I think they opened at 245 pence. They're down, where are they now? Uh, in the region of 219 pence. Um, so yeah, a, a couple of points have been made on, on that valuation. You know, it, It's been suggested that it doesn't necessarily stack up based on their production and reserves. Uh, and most of what they actually have producing right now is indeed kind of more mature central North Sea stuff. Uh, their upside is obviously... A lot of that is in the west of Shetland potential. Um, probably more importantly than that, it's been suggested that the valuation uh, shows that Ithaca has perhaps managed to play down its substantial decommissioning liabilities. Again, going back to that Central North Sea assets, all of this needs to be cleaned up and taken away uh, before too long, depending on on how they how much more they can get out of it. So there, there's a cost to that clearly. And there's also refinancing on the horizon. You know, uh, analysts suggest that it would be to pay for the dividends that Ithaca has promised in the next couple of years. Uh, the chairman told me that they would refinance, but the, the main suggestion there would be because of the costs associated with 
Campbell, Rosebank and the, the Marigold development they're working up with hibiscus in the central North Sea. But yeah, I mean, for Ithacus Park, you know, they said the UK market's been starved of a North Sea IPO for, for years now. This valuation's at the lower end of guidance, but I wouldn't say they were too put off. It seemed they seemed pretty buoyant. Buoyant. Um, interesting to see if the market corrects things. Um, if indeed it does need corrected, um, shares are are dipping a bit, but perhaps perhaps too early to say just now. Anyway, I think it was pretty. I saw some reports on LinkedIn from I think it was Nathan Piper from Investec saying that this could well be the biggest IPO in the London stock market this year of any of any company, which for to be held by an oil and gas firm would have been unthinkable 12 months ago so that was pretty interesting i thought but yeah the, the fact this overvaluation stuff is um is it's interesting we we'll have to track that and see how that pans out i was just thinking there kind of who else who are the other candidates for an ipo operators in the next in the next few years let's try to think who's still who's still left to go Nep- neptune that would be the big one i think they've, they've, there's been rumors about that for a long time uh, and i think i think the the ceo is on record this year is saying they're still looking at it but maybe it won't be this year so yeah i mean i, I i'm sure uh, it, neptune will be looking very closely at how uh, ithaca uh, has performed um and and will continue to to watch it closely um ithaca said they kind of did this um tour of their shareholders to find out uh, you know how what what they thought would be attractive and and what would be the best way to go um, and and yeah, it seemed to be the the dividends, the the upside potential in the west of Shetland, and 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 yeah, I mean, I, I again, kind of lower end of guidance. I, I, as far as I can see, I don't think you can necessarily call it a failure. I think it would still be a, a success uh, after, especially considering the the amount of time it's been, and and the, I guess the turbulence we've had in recent years um, as well. You know, just to to keep the confidence up, but uh, especially politically, which actually leads me on to the next point I was going to raise, which was uh, the windfall tax stuff. Um, you know, I, again, uh, I I just can't help it. I'm so sorry. Um, I had to ask him because we've, we've got the budget next week, right? So, you know, f- f- where are the risks? If you're looking to get Campbell and Rosebank to FID next year, uh, clearly you've got a massive amount of activism uh, and, and, you know, environmental protesters. And, and we saw Nicola Sturgeon confronted in Egypt at COP27 this week by Stop Rosebank campaigners. But, you know, Ithaca were quite clear the biggest question mark for them is the the old energy profits levy. Um, they said, you know, in its current guise, it's fairly supportive of new projects because clearly there's this... Um, investment incentive linked to it. I think it's 91% return on investment. Um, so kind of cutting down the amount of tax you have to pay. But again, autumn budget next week, Jeremy Hunt is, is expected to increase the rate and the timeline of the windfall tax. It's not clear how investment incentives will be affected, but if they are, um, yeah, Ithaca were, were quite clear. You know, if 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 it, if it changes in that way or if it becomes unsupportive, then they won't be able to do these things. And uh, not only they won't be able to do it, their banks won't help finance because it's if, if it's not an attractive return and and they were quite clear along the lines of look we, we recognize the need to be taxed i think most companies have, have, have been saying something like that um but also there's there is an energy security issue there is an issue around keeping the the lights on and and keeping the wheels of the industry turning and and the jobs and and whatever else so i think the the message was you know once, once the chance to be considered and thoughtful um, in, in his approach, um, I, I think he will be. Um, but I think he'll be considered and thoughtful about the the fifty billion pound uh, fiscal black hole we've been hearing about uh, as well. So 
yeah, I, I maybe a bit of a challenge there, but um, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll. I'm sure we'll hear more about the, the dreaded windfall tax next week. Um, but that's enough of my ramblings. Uh, next up, it's our very own prospector, uh, Hamish Penman, with a North Sea gold rush. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed, and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Hamish, I've, I've heard it joked before that there's kind of every color of the rainbow for hydrogen, but this really uh, this really takes the cake. Uh, tell us a bit about what's going on here. Yeah, you're indestructible, always believe in gold. Um, <laughs> is gold a color? Is gold, I don't know if it's a tone or a shade or anything. Anyway, it's probably not important to this bit right now, but um, yeah, we've got pretty much every color under the hydrogen rainbow now with turquoise, obviously the famed blue and green, and now gold to chuck into the equation. And I think gold is perhaps, of all of them, maybe one that will prick up the ears of um, of North Sea oil and gas firms, maybe more than the others. So gold hydrogen, just to kind of break it down to its most basic points, is hydrogen that's produced using subsurface microbes um, that eat up oil and produce um, clean hydrogen, which can then rises to the surface and can be captured at the top of um, of wells. And then used in all sorts of processes, a heavy industry to, and uh, those sorts of things to decarbonize. Anyway, if you go by Semvita, who are Houston headquartered that I uh, spoke to for the latest supplement, seems like it's going to be uh, the the next kind of wave of of innovation. Um, they're very very bullish. They've um, carried out some trials in the Permian Basin in Texas. Um, to caveat that is onshore uh, with this subsurface microbes. And I chatted to their um, chief. Uh, Chief Business Officer, sorry, Charlie Nelson, um, and he kind of put it in a very good um, metaphor in that these these microbes that basically produce beer and and those sorts of things can be altered slightly and and used to produce hydrogen from from oil. So that that was the the easiest way for him to break it down for me because it was completely over my head. But before he put it in those sorts of terms, but after that it was oh, I know exactly what you're on about. Um, so yeah, these these are injected into wells in much the same way that carbon is for um, enhanced oil recovery. And he said that kind of on average, fields and wells, are about 30% of the oil that's in them is left behind simply because it can't be uh, reached. Um, so that means that there's billions and billions of barrels all across the world uh, that are just left in the left in the ground that could be put to, to better use. So they carried out these trials, they kind of did a package of wells, injected this, these subsurface microbes and, and got this lovely gold hydrogen. And I think the, the kind of thing that really jumped out was that was the cost at which they are able to extract it, which is seems remarkably lower. So it's about a, um, a dollar a kilogram. Uh, it kind of depends on which type of hydrogen you're using, but I've seen reports that Certain types can be up to eight or nine dollars, so that's <clears throat> well below that market rate. 
and it says it's also able to generate about 20 to 50 tons of the fuel a day um, at this price. So it's huge, huge quantities. And it also gives a, a new lease of life to these wells that would otherwise been abandoned. Now, all of the field trials so far have been carried out onshore. Did of ask the obvious question of could it be used offshore and specifically in the North Sea? And, and Charlie was pretty bullish that's and optimistic that basically it's a solution that can be used anywhere it needs tweaking for for different settings obviously but really the the process of putting these subsurface uh, microbes in and getting hydrogen out is it's pretty homogenous wherever you are in the world so it seems like it would be a a novel and very useful way to to put these i think it's hundreds thousands of soon become thousands of suspended wells in the north sea of um of extracting a bit more a bit more value out of those so i think it's a really quite a fascinating project one i'll certainly be keeping an eye on and yeah i think the the main problem he said which is something that we hear from a lot of hydrogen companies is that the market just isn't there yet for for this to scale up but i think everyone is expecting it to be there in the next few years so so yeah one to keep an eye on certainly I want to I want to I want to chip in at this point because this whole thing about gold hydrogen I think you know like again it's a question about you know how you define hydrogen and and the colors right I remember speaking to a guy a while ago who was telling me about gold hydrogen was naturally occurring hydrogen. And there was like, oh, there's like a, a, a resource somewhere, in, I think it was in Mali. And he was like, oh, this is this is the true gold hydrogen. So I'm just going to say, like, there's a whole branding problem that's going on. And I think there's uh, there's a lot of competing colours. Does this open up a, a fool's gold hydrogen? <laughs> yeah, that, 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 I think you're probably right there, Ed. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, uh, maybe from, from, from my take, uh, my hot take, I mean, beer and and gold that really captures the imagination i'll say that um, <laughs> for them yeah uh the, the 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 open water north sea idea that that's interesting I, I i especially with the cost angle because i guess you're you're looking at some very very expensive rig rates at the moment which are only going to go up mm. um in the near term as far as we can tell so i'd be quite interested to see in how how actually that would play into their cost model um if they were to try to to do it in in the North Sea, but I mean, again, going back to that capturing the imagination. It, it, so they've got. Am I, am, I, am I right in saying Hamish? They've got what Mitsubishi behind them. Yeah, and Oxy as well. Interesting. Yeah, I mean that's that's a pretty good uh, set of backers who might um, you know if you can get a couple on board, then hopefully that will open the door to more. Can't quite remember exactly who it was, but they certainly got backers in the aerospace industry as well, um, because gold hydrogen is just one uh, wing of their business but yeah i think to uh, to caveat that one dollar i think it was one dollar to the wellhead um so there are then obviously transportation costs and all those kind of other sorts of costs along the way that will mean that it won't be a dollar when it gets to the to the consumer um but still if you're able to keep down those initial initial costs then it's a, a pretty good starting point but yeah I, I don't know how that uh, rig piece would feed into this um, and, and how the kit would have to be adjusted for it to be able to work in the North Sea and whether that could also ramp up the costs, how these subsurface microbes would um, behave in what is a pretty cold environment as well. I suppose these are all things that will be carried out in tests, carried out in labs to, to establish. But yeah, he was hoping that he's yeah going for a gold rush in the North Sea, I think was the exact phrase he used. So... Based on that language alone, it was a, 
it was enough to to get me excited anyway i mean yeah i think i think i think it, it, it certainly captures the imagination i think i think ed's right uh, there's been a lot of uh, fool's gold and different uh, things thrown about there so i mean i don't know i mean if we can get involved in the gold rush i mean i know as journalists obviously we can't but uh <laughs> it's exciting it's an exciting time to be a prospector in the north sea who who knew um or in, well indeed in texas perhaps that's a bit more uh, a bit more standard i don't know but uh yeah but also i think i mean I think it's it's quite exciting that people are still kind of you know doing hygiene, isn't it? Because I think you know obviously in the last kind of couple of years during during the pandemic that when there was a feeling that you know maybe oil and gas was kind of finished, you know, and those sort of apocalyptic you know warnings that we all heard, and hydrogen really kind of came up at that point, didn't it? And now it feels that you know even while oil and gas has you know kind of come back to an extent, you know, obviously depending on where in the world you are and and and, and quite how you feel about uh, net zero and things, but. The fact that the, you know that there are these still these 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 hydrogen plans going on, I think I think is really important. And I mean, you know, kind of bringing back to uh, to, to to Egypt. I mean, I think there was a, there was a commissioning of a first uh, electrolyzer in, uh, in 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 Egypt this week, which again, you know, it's just one of those things that kind of helps play into that um, the hydrogen narrative. But I think also. There is that question about 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 long term demand, isn't there? And, and and quite how you make a go of something which is so novel, right? I and mean, I think so. You know, the the gold hydrogen in the North Sea obviously sounds very exciting, but it's always that question about how you translate this, you know, kind of really zingy idea into in, into a, like a sort of a practical kind of deliverable, you know, like landing hydrogen, you know, in on on shore, isn't it? And I think that's going to be the challenge, like you know, the that that kind of question around around long term contracts and. And, and and quite who's going to sign up to be, you know to be an off taker for say 10 20 years for a technology that may not be entirely you know sort of uh comprehended uh fully fully understood by by those in the industry so yeah i think i think it does feel like a time of opportunity but also uh we're it was still still on that sort of slight step before these things take off aren't we and i think Blue hydrogen already attracts such an amount of opposition because of its kind of ties to to oil and gas, and specifically gas. I mean, you can only imagine what the ire that gold hydrogen is going to cause to some, where it's um, eating up eating up oil in a in, in depleted reservoirs. But I mean, maybe maybe that would be a, to its favour, actually, getting rid of mm. getting rid of old reserves. <laughs> yeah, the, we'll, we'll see how the market plays out for this one, but uh, certainly an interesting idea. And uh, yeah, speaking of Egypt, just very quickly to point to our sister site, SG Voice, and uh, Fee Jackson, who is over there in Egypt for us, uh, who has been posting uh, daily videos on the latest uh, at the COP27 Climate Summit. So if you want more on that, please do uh, head on over to SG Voice for the latest. Uh, and that is it for our, our episode now of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Hamish and Ed for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.